Father, thanks for a moment to be still this morning, to invite your presence to speak to us through the power of your word. Lord, we pray that you would do that. We come expectant that as we uh, look at this story in two chapters of the Old Testament, that you would hold a mirror to our heart, that you would expose things that need to be exposed, and that you would help us turn from those things that you expose us to back to you. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, hearts to be transformed into the likeness of your son. We are so desperate for you as we just sang. We need you uh, moment by moment. So be with us during this time. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. My name's John, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we started a new series last week, so if you're new, this is a good time for you to join us. Uh, we're going to be in this series all the way up until right before Christmas, before Advent season. And so uh, for the next 20 months or so, we'll be studying um, the Old Testament kings. And this series is called We Want a King. And we're looking at the rise and the fall of the first three kings of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, Saul, David, and Solomon. And uh, this is kind of attached to it, some uh, community power and brokenness and politics. And really, again, um, as we're looking at this historical narrative, man, it can speak to us today in our cultural moment, even today, as I've been diving into the stories and into the text, uh, it's just been revealing and again, holding a mirror up to my own heart to going like, what are we really trying to be about here at Redemption Peoria as a community? And hopefully uh, you'll catch some of the stuff that's uh, important in this series. And last week, we kind of unpacked 1 Samuel chapter 8 as a whole chapter, and we looked at kind of the big idea of this whole series that's going to kind of carry us through. Um, and the big idea of the chapter last week was that if you follow an earthly king, you're going to get earthly results. If you follow an earthly king, you get earthly results. If you follow a heavenly king, you'll get heavenly results. So many times we follow earthly kings or earthly kingdoms expecting heavenly results. And then we're frustrated and disillusioned that we don't get the results we're actually looking for, that results we're actually created for because we're following the wrong lead. And the text is pointing us back to God being our king, the one we need to follow time and time again. Uh, if you're taking notes, this is kind of the main thrust of what we're going to be looking at in the two chapters this morning. It's this idea that if we follow an earthly king, this earthly system of following somebody that's following that type of way, human charisma always trumps godly character. For following a human king, hu uh, human charisma always will trump godly character. But following a heavenly king, God's character always trumps human charisma. That's what we're going to get exposed to in the text this morning, and it begs the question for us to examine our own hearts of going like, what type of leader are we following? What type of leader are we following in our communities? We're all following somebody at some level, whether it's work or your family or your home. We're following people. What type of leader are we following? Specifically to what type of leader leads us towards godliness and once we answer the question, what type of leader are you following, you will begin to answer another question of what type of leader are you becoming? Because the leader you follow is eventually the leader you will become. That's just true. We all have leadership or influence in our lives at some level. You might not be a CEO leader, but you have some type of leadership in your life. Some people are looking at you and following you in some form or fashion. And so understanding and, again, doing some reverse engineering to go, 
what type of leader am I following is really, really massively important, as we'll see from the text this morning. A couple weeks ago, I ran into a stat uh, that said 76% of Americans choose where they're going to attend church based on what? Preaching. Right? They choose their church based on the preaching. Now, I don't know how the survey was set up. It may have been set up of like categories and preaching came to the top. I'm not exactly sure, but there's problems with that. Inherently, if you choose the community of faith that you're involved in only based on what gets said on Sunday morning, that has potential to be a problem. Because somebody can stand up and some people do stand up every Sunday morning and they can deliver the word and they can be charismatic and they can be exciting and kind of interesting and funny. And on the inside, they're kind of hollow. But if you're basing where you go and where you follow in your faith community only on preaching, that could be a problem. We see it all the time in the American church. Right? These folks, they, they rise up, they have these huge followings, and people are following because they're dynamic and they're exciting. And then a couple years later, what happens is that their character gets outpaced by their charisma. And eventually, they do something terrible and they fall. This is the warning for all of us in the room to say, okay, what matters in God's economy, in God's kingdom with the leaders that we follow? Versus what the world would say, oh, that should be what you would follow and why you would go to this place or that. Diane Langberg, I've mentioned her a couple times up front, and I'll continue to do so because if you're staying with us in this series for the next several months, um, she has written her most recent book, and it, it's just such a beautiful pairing with what God is doing in the text here. Her book is called Redeeming Power. It's a hard read in the context of she just takes some smelling salts and goes like this to us in our culture of what we do with power in our churches specifically and how we misuse it, and then how do you redeem it? There is hope in the midst of her book. But in her book, she's talking about the leaders we follow, and this is what she says. She says, when we select leaders in the church, we often look for brilliance, charisma, knowledge, and all forms of human power. The apostle Paul says no. He describes his own authority as not according to the flesh, his power did not come from human personality, human brilliance, or any human gift or activity. And 1 Corinthians 2 reminds us, Paul is saying that directly. He's saying, listen, I didn't come and preach to you with eloquence in speech or wisdom or human wisdom. No, no, no. I came to preach Christ and Christ alone. And the reason I preach Christ and Christ alone is so that you don't fall into this trap of relying on your faith on human wisdom. Paul says the same thing. She continues in her book. She says, was he brilliant? Talking about Paul, she says, yes. Was he gifted? Yes. But he laid those qualities aside as they hindered, if they hindered his care of another soul. He claimed to take captive every thought, perception, or purpose and make it obedient to Christ. And this idea of following somebody of character rather than charisma is what we're going to find. What God is actually doing in the story is he puts his first king into position. 
Again, if you weren't here with us, let's just set the scene for where we're jumping into. God's people in chapter 8, they no longer want his type of leadership. He is meant to be their king, their protector, their provider, and they get tired of it. They ignore it. They look to the left and to the right, and they see what the other nations are doing. And we're like, we're tired of this, God. We don't want to trust you by faith anymore. We want a king like the nations, somebody that will go out and fight our battles for us. And through the prophet Samuel, God warns the people, his people. He says, listen, if you do that, if you follow that type of king, you know what they're going to do. They're going to take and take and take and take. And ultimately, you will be enslaved to them if you follow them. Not only that, you'll lose your identity as my people, as a, a nation, a light to the nations. You'll lose it. And maybe the most scary warning we heard last week in chapter 8 was that when you call upon my name, when you realize you're at the bottom... I'm not going to answer you in that day. Samuel gives this strong warning to God's people, and what do they do with it? No, 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 no. We want a king. We want a king like the other nations. They totally ignore it because their mind is set on moving forward in the way of the world and the way of an earthly king. And this week and the next three weeks, we're going to look at the life of Saul as the first king of Israel. So God gives him this warning, but he also tells Samuel, he says, okay, give them what they want. And there's even grace in that. There's even grace like a good parent will go like, okay, you keep begging and bothering me for this type of thing. I'm warning you, this is not going to give you what you want. I'm actually going to give it to you in my grace to show you, man, this isn't the way to go. And that's what happens is God says, okay, we're going to give him a king. And he chooses this man, Saul, that we'll get introduced to in the text this morning. And we're going to see Saul's rise and then his eventual fall. We're going to see in this couple of chapters and then next week, we're going to see in chapter 11. Man, if chapter 11 was the only chapter written on Saul, man, it would be good. He'd be in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 because he trusts God in moments. He, Saul's not all bad, but there's moments where he trusts God and he doesn't trust God. And in chapter 11, he really trusts God and God uses him to deliver his people but what we're going to see in the text this morning that should clue us into the type of leader that Saul is, is God's holding up this comparison. Do you want an earthly king? Here's the things that matter for an earthly king around you. The nations would say, this is the guy because of these reasons. Or do you want somebody of character? This is the reason you should choose your king. And again, we talked about Last week, that in historical narrative, which is what we're in right now, there's a lot of um, seeing versus telling, right? The story is going to expose us to what God is trying to teach us versus him just telling us in the text, this is what I mean, this is what I mean. So our job is to uh, unpack the cultural context for us to understand the story of going, what is God saying? And a lot of us, we read this and we just miss it because we don't quite understand the culture that God's people would understand as they read it. And so that's our job this morning on Sunday mornings to say, okay, what is actually happening here and how does it expose us to what God is trying to teach us? Let me give you a quick summary because again, we're going to be in nine, uh, uh, chapter 9 and chapter 10 this morning. And so it's two full chapters, so I'm not going to read every single word. I'm going to kind of read parts and I'm going to summarize parts and I'm going to interject on what it actually means culturally. But here's the general arc of what we're going to see in these two chapters as his introduction to Saul. We're going to see him introduced in the first 21 verses of chapter 9. Then we're going to see him honored by Samuel in those two verses, 22 and 25, through 25. Then we're going to see him privately anointed by Samuel 
that will move into Saul being overpowered by God's spirit in chapter 10, 9 through 13. Then we see Saul hiding. We see him hiding in his words in 14 through 16, and then hiding in his physical location in 21 through 23. And then we see in the midst of that hiding, he's publicly proclaimed as king. So that's where we're going to go. And again, um, this doesn't make a ton of sense. This is not a ploy for you to come here on Sundays. But if you don't come, you're going to miss major pieces. Because this is not like an 80s sitcom where we're going to sit through a half hour and everything's going to be buttoned up and it's going to tie in a bow. Like this is moving. This story is moving. And so if you miss a Sunday, you're going to miss a massive part of what God is trying to teach us and show us, just so you know. Um, but this is the, the scene we're going to see, the, the multiple scenes we'll see today. And again, this, is, this text is what it's doing. I, I believe it's giving us clues and insights to Saul's character and why those character flaws potentially can lead to his downfall and ultimately do lead to his downfall as a leader. So that's where we're going. Let's jump in. If you have a Bible, it's already open. Open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, son of Abel, son of Zeror, son of Bekaroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he and his son, whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Let's stop there for a second and unpack what is the, the narrator trying to do. He's introducing this character for the first time in the story. What are the pieces he gives us of this character that should carry throughout his story? Well, he's telling us that he's from wealth. He's telling us that he is handsome, more handsome than anyone else. And he's taller, like he's way taller than anyone else. So think of like Brad Pitt's face on Shaquille O'Neal's body. Like, you're like, wow, this is, and he's rich too? I mean, this guy's like, he's the next bachelor. Like, it's clear. Like, the, the narrator is trying to expose things that matter to the world. If you're looking for a leader, these things matter. Not only that, but it exposed, anytime you read the Old Testament, um, pay attention to descriptions and pay attention to people's names. So Samuel, who's the prophet leading up to this kind of story, and he's still intertwined in this story, Samuel is born of Hannah. She's requesting a baby, and she's asking God, and then she gives that beautiful poem in, in chapter 2, talking about that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. These themes carry throughout the story. But his name, Samuel's name, means requested of God. Hannah's requesting, and she's asking God. That's what it means. Saul's name means he who was requested. He's requested by the people. He's not requested of God. He's requested by the people. So even his name is an indicator of what's going to happen to this character. Let's continue to read on. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, that's his dad, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, take one of your young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. Verse 4 talks about these cities. They, they go for about a 20-mile hike looking for these donkeys, Saul and his servants. They can't find them. Verse 5, then they came to the land of Zuf. Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who held in honor all that he says comes true. So let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. 
Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. There is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and we can give it to the man of God to tell us our way. The story goes on. They run into this young woman and they ask him at the well, where is Samuel, this man of God? And they point, she points him in the right direction. So let's stop there again. And what is the narrator trying to do? What's God trying to do in the story to expose us to who Saul is? There's a couple things, just like we saw in the first two verses. Think about all the major leaders that Israel, God's people, have had up until this point. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. They all share a common profession. Do you know what it is? Their vocation, they're shepherds. They're all shepherds in agricultural landscape. They are shepherds. And what they're exposing is, okay, the first time you get introduced to this guy, other than his name and his description, he has a mission. Go out and find donkeys. Now, donkeys are bigger than sheep. They should not be as hard to find, even though they're not all the way there bright-wise. And they search for three days, over 20 miles, and they can't even find them. What do you think? This is a nod in the text to the character of Saul. Like, man, the leaders of God's people have been shepherds. And this guy can't even find a bunch of donkeys. This is a problem. You want him to lead you because he looks good and he's tall and he's rich, but like, he can't even find a bunch of donkeys. What else is exposed in these texts that we read? Some of the other parts that, that we can see if we read between the lines and we understand the context is that everybody knows who Samuel is. He's God's prophet in Israel. People know about him. In chapter 3 of the same book, verse 20, it says, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord. Everybody knows who Samuel is except who in this story. Saul doesn't know who he is. He has no clue. His servant is actually the one that goes, Oh, there's a man of God that knows everything. We need to go to him. So it's exposing kind of Saul's lack of character, of understanding the ways of following God. He doesn't even know who Samuel is. And then the last thing that we see in this text, well, two more things actually, is that um, when, when Saul runs up against something, he says his first words out of his mouth, come, let's go back. He doesn't want to finish the task and he doesn't want to ask God for help. He has no desire for God to intervene. He just... It, that's not an option for him. For some reason, the text is telling us that is a problem if you're going to put this person in leadership. His servant has to be the one that suggests, hey, let's go to Prophet Samuel. He also doesn't quite understand how this works because he goes, well, we don't have any money. And if Saul had any idea how... God's man would work. You wouldn't pay him for advice. You would just go to him. And so clearly he is off the page when it comes to understanding the ways of God. These are all things that the text is trying to give us hints to. This is exposing Saul's character of who he is. Let's pick up the story in verse 15. It says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel... Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall appoint him to be the prince, that, that word prince is also leader, over my people of Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, 
For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is a man whom I have spoken to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. First of all, the beauty and the grace of God in this moment, if you see this phrase over and over in these couple of verses, my people, my people, my people. God has not broken covenant with his people, even though he's giving them what they want. He said, I'm going to give you a king, but you realize these are my people. I'm still going to protect them. I'm still going to provide for them, even if they don't want it the way that's best for them. So Saul runs into Samuel at the gate as we continue the story. So that, that scene, again, um, the Lord is speaking to the prophet Samuel saying, hey, here's the guy. He saw, you're going to meet him. And then as Saul and his servant are still looking for the donkey, they go to the gate and they run into Samuel, God's prophet. And Saul says, hey, tell me where I can find the man of God. Tell me where I can find the prophet. He doesn't even realize he's face to face with him. And Samuel's like, dude, it's me, homie. Like, I'm the guy. And he goes, I want you to come with me to dinner. And by the way, this is what Samuel says, Saul, by the way, the donkeys are found. Don't worry about the donkeys. Donkeys are found. You're good. So Saul's got to be going like, I don't know what's going on here. And he follows him. And then we pick it up in verse 22. And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them the place, the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, verse 25. And when they came down from a high place in the city, to a, uh, to a bed that was spread out for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. So Samuel, in this part of the story, he is giving Saul the honor due to him based on the Lord's choosing of him of the next king. Samuel's going, okay, this is going to be the king that we're going to anoint. This is the guy, and I'm going to honor him. I am going to uh, take care of him in this moment. The next morning, Samuel and Saul head out. Samuel tells Saul to have his servant go ahead, and he's like, I need to have a one-on-one -on -one chat with Saul. So where we pick up the story in chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be the prince over his people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be the prince over his heritage. And then he rolls out, Samuel rolls out these different signs that Saul is going to experience to confirm that, in fact, you are the next king. He tells him, you're going to run into two men. And they'll tell you that the donkeys are found. Like, I know you don't believe me about the donkeys and you're really worried about the donkeys. These guys are going to be like, hey, we found your donkeys. That's the first sign. The second sign, you're going to run into three men. They're going to worship God. One has a goat, one has an, uh, uh, two pieces of bread, one has wine. Greet them and they will give you the bread Take the bread. The next sign, you'll run into these prophets, and they'll be playing instruments, and they'll be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord is going to come uh, upon you, and you're going to prophesy with them. These are all signs that you actually are the next king. Lays out a series of things for Saul to be confirmed, because Saul's got to be like, I don't know what's going on here. And God in his grace is going to confirm, you are the next person to step into this role to lead as a king. Verse 1, the anointing language is interesting if you're not familiar with it, but this was something practiced in this culture, even in Egyptian culture. So in Egyptian culture, it was custom to anoint minor kings who owed their allegiance to the ultimate king of Egypt. 
That's kind of how they would commission these, uh, these young kings. And so this is a similar act that, that Saul is doing to Samuel, or Samuel's doing to Saul. He's anointing him, saying, like, listen, you are going to be the king, but ultimately, ultimately, your allegiance will lie with the king, Yahweh. It's a nod to that type of commissioning. Let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. This is Samuel telling this to Saul. And you will prophesy with him and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me at Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what else you should do. So Samuel's saying, here's the deal, Saul. You're the next king. Here's how it's going to play out. You're going to get confirmed in all these three things. But I want to remind you, verse 8 is going to be important in the story later in chapter 13. He's like, listen, just because you're the king doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. You need to realize that ultimately your allegiance is to Yahweh. And, oh, by the way, I'm still a prophet. There's still things that I'm going to be doing. You have to wait for me for seven days when I come to offer the sacrifice. You should not do that yourself. It gives clear instruction to that. But I love verse 6. I mean, again, at this point, we're going like, Saul's kind of like a, he's kind of like a himbo, you know, not a bimbo, but a himbo. Like, he's just, like a, he's just really attractive and really tall, but he just seems kind of clueless. Like, is there any hope for this guy? Verse 6 says there is. Because when the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, you will prophesy with them, and you will be turned into another man. Those of you that bow your knee to Jesus, you've made a decision for Jesus at some point in your life. Do you know when God meets you, you get turned into another person? A totally different person. All those things that you had before in your life, they get changed. You get turned into another person when the power of God comes upon you. There's nothing you could do to receive it other than let it happen. And God meets you in that moment, and he turns you into something else. That's beautiful for all of us. And again, Saul has to be thinking, like, what is going on here? Like, what is happening to me? And is this dude for real? Like, is this guy telling me, like, is he just blowing smoke, or is this stuff actually going to happen? And as soon as he leaves, we're going to see in verse 9, as soon as Saul leaves Samuel... He gets a new heart. Look at what it says, verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he was prophesying among them. And when all knew him, previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over this son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Clearly what the text is pointing us to in the midst of this story is that when God changes us, when his spirit comes upon us, we have a new heart and we start doing things that nobody expected. Even us. Right? That you get a new heart 
When the Spirit comes upon you and changes you. Before that new heart, Saul had no chance. He was dead in his sins and his trespasses to God. He had no chance to obey God, to follow God. God meets him in a divine moment, pours the Spirit upon him, gives him a new heart, changes him. Now at least he has the opportunity to obey. Before he had no opportunity. Now he has an opportunity to honor God, obey God. It doesn't mean he always does it. But sometimes he does in the story. And that's for all of us. When we get regenerated, when God's Spirit changes us, we now have access to the Spirit to obey God, not in our own power, but in His. And we see that in Paul. Or I'm, I'm sorry, in Saul. And he starts prophesying with these guys. And people look in verse 11, they're like, what is, who? Like, is this the same guy? He has an experience with that. And he eventually comes back home. Verse 14, as we pick it back up. Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, so he has this unbelievable experience with God. Then he ends up coming back to home. And his uncle says, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when he saw they were not found, he went to Samuel after he talks to his servant. Verse 15, and then Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had spoken, he did not say anything. So Saul in this moment is hiding information from his uncle. Like why, why is he doing that? Why does he choose to tell him about the donkeys, but he doesn't tell him about this encounter he just had with the Lord and that he's eventually going to be king? We don't know. The text doesn't ultimately tell us. I mean, we can kind of guess. And, and some of my guess, and I don't know if you've experienced this, maybe um, you go to a camp or you go on a retreat or maybe there's a Sunday where for some reason God's spirit breaks in and he interacts with you and he shows you something about who he is and who you are. And now you're changed and you live differently in this environment. And then you go back home to an environment that doesn't have those values. And that environment, the people in that environment go like, well, what happened to you? And you go, ah, nothing, nothing, nothing happened to me. Like, nothing. It was good. It was a good camp. That was, that was it. Because, like, you're embarrassed to share. You don't want to be put in this category of Jesus freak or follower of Christ because, like, you know how those people talk about the Jesus people. And you kind of get ashamed. You kind of get this kind of spiritual hangover. And you go, ah, nah, I don't want to share that. I'm not sure I'm ready to share that. I think that's what's happening to Saul in this moment, which happens to us often. Let's pick up where the story eventually lands. Verse 17. Now Samuel called all the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians from that hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all the calamities and your disasters. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by the thousands. So again, Samuel comes home. The camera shifts in the story. Now uh, Samuel is addressing all the nations. They all come in for this meeting. You guys are saying you want a king. 
I'm going to give you a king. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to set you in tribes, and then uh, eventually I'm going to set you in clans. And he cast lots to go like, okay, who is going to be the next king? To say like, this isn't, wasn't my hand. This is of God's hand. And so he gets all the tribes together. He rolls the dice, I think. I don't know how he cast lots back in the day, but it's kind of some type of system that seems random, but it, God's under it. He's divine over it. And then it's this clan, and then it's this clan, and then eventually it becomes the person of Saul. This is going to be the next king. Now again, this is something for us to realize that the narrator is doing in a subtle way that God's people, when they read this, they would have recognized this. There's only one other time in the whole Old Testament up to this point of the story that somebody is identified in this way. Do you know where it is? It's in Joshua chapter 7 where Israel fights this battle. God says, don't take anything from the battle. And there's a guy named Achan. He shoves some gold in his pocket or up his robe or something, right? And he steals a bunch of stuff, disobeying God's command outright. And then because of it, he goes and he hides it, buries it in the ground. And then God comes to Joshua and says, hey, there's sin in the camp. Instead of just saying, it's this guy, he says, okay, I want you to get him in tribes. Cast lots, I want you to get them in clans, and eventually it's going to whittle down to this person, and it's Achan. This is the only other time an individual is chosen like this. It should nod to us to go like, okay, God's going, you want to do it this way, it's not going to go well for you, but I'm going to still let you have it. I'm going to let you have it in my grace and in my mercy, because you're not listening to me, but you should realize it's not going to go well for you. That's how Saul gets identified in this moment. Let's continue the back end. What, what happens when Saul gets identified? The, the back end of verse 21, let's pick it up there. But when they sought him, so it's, it's Saul, he's the guy. When they sought him, he couldn't be found. Verse 22 says, so they inquired of the Lord again. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Saul's literally hiding. He's the tallest one there. I can't imagine. He's got to be laying down, right? Like he's, he's hiding amongst all the luggage. Verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Man, this is really interesting to me. I just find it so full of irony. Right? God chooses Saul. It's clear. He gives him signs of his confirmation. You're going to step into this role. Trust me with this. Saul kind of withholds this information from uh, his family members. And then when it's time to choose him and he gets chosen, it's whittled down, whittled down, whittled down. Oh, it's going to be Saul. This is the guy. He's nowhere to be found. He's hiding. Why is Saul hiding? I think he's hiding because he's afraid to lead. He's afraid to fail. And he's going, what does this mean for my life? Why do we hide in general as people? Right? We see it. It's the first thing we see as we disobey as humans in the garden, right? Adam and Eve hide from God. And we hide all the time because we don't feel like we're enough. That's why we hide. Hiding at its core has to do with our character. 
It has to do with our integrity. Are we the same person in the light that we are in the dark? If that's true, you don't have to hide. You can be fully known. But if you don't feel like you can be fully known because you have gaps in your character, you start to hide. You start to put on masks. You start to look one way to this group and one way to this group, and you begin to hide yourself from people. And I just think it's so ironic in, in, in verse 24. Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? Do, do you see the character flaws in this guy? Like there's problems with this leader. He's not a good leader, but he looks good. Right before this, he's hiding. He doesn't want to step up to the plate. He doesn't want to lead in some type of way. He wants to hide. But man, he's tall. And it's interesting in the text, leading up to this point in the story, again, in the Old Testament, Israelites, the kings, uh, the leaders of the nation of Israel, they never get described for their height. Do you know who gets described for their height in the Old Testament? All God's enemies. That's it. God is going, do you want this? This is the guy. Do you want this? You said you want this type of king. I'm going to give you this type of king. He's going to look good on the outside, man. He's going to have charisma, and he's going to do good. But, like, his character is not going to be it. He's hiding right before. And the people go, oh, no, let us, let us have him. Long live Saul, right? And, man, we do this all the time. There's character flaws. There's gaps. Nobody's perfect. There's not, there's not a perfection of a leader we're trying to follow other than Jesus but we should be looking at people's character. And oftentimes we can kind of let things slide because, oh, they can do this or they can do that. And God's saying, don't do that. Character has to matter. Has to matter. The other question that's good for us to ask is like, where are you hiding? Like, where are there moments that you're hiding? God is calling you to step into this role, and you're going like, I'm not sure. I'm afraid to fail. I'm afraid of what this means for my life. I don't know, and it's easier to hide than it is to trust God as he's calling you to do something, to say something, to be someone to someone. And you're going, I don't know about that. It's way easier to hide. What type of leader are you following? That answer will determine what type of leader you're becoming. And for us, this should be a wake-up call for us to go, man, if we follow an earthly king, charisma may be exciting for a season, but that charisma outpaces character. This is what happens. At the end of the day, we're going to find the one we're following hiding, and then we're going to start hiding. Man, the beauty of the gospel is that we follow a heavenly king. He doesn't hide. Troops come for him. He's praying in the garden with his followers. He has every opportunity to hide. What does he do? He steps into the thing God's called him to, his father has called him to. He doesn't stay up in heaven comfortable. He sees the problem. He knows the will of the Father. He doesn't hide up in his comfort of heaven. He steps down into the earth 
to be with us, to get dirty with us, to love us, to die for us so that we could have freedom. We have a king in Jesus that doesn't hide. And when you start to follow him, do you know where you get to hide? You get to hide in him. Colossians 3 tells us that. That we're hidden with Christ. That even in the midst of all your imperfection and you feel like you don't measure up, you don't have to have your identity tied to what other people think of you, whether they follow you, whether they don't follow you, whether you do a good job, you don't do a good job, because your identity is rooted, it's anchored in Christ, following him, and then you're hidden in him. Man, and you get to live free there. Last week, I wasn't feeling great physically. And I didn't know what was going on with COVID. I don't know. I think I was okay. But I didn't want to like share my germs with anyone. So uh, normally I love interacting with you guys in between services and out in front. But man, I just came, I preached, and then I went directly behind this wall right here. Because I didn't want to get anybody sick if I was sick. Is anybody sick? Hopefully that's not because of me. But I don't think I saw anybody or really talked to anybody last week. So I'm back there in between services. And I'm just laying on the floor behind this wall. And I'm laying there, you know, there's 20 minutes in between service or whatever, and I'm just laying and praying and thinking and all the things and trying not to give my germs to anybody. And I realize, like, I'm like, I'm laying right under this cross right here. And I'm like, it's kind of like I'm hiding because I don't want anybody to get my germs. But I'm like, if I'm going to hide anywhere, that's where I'm going to hide. I'm going to hide behind the cross. I'm going to hide in the fact that Jesus is the one where I get my identity. Not from how I look, not from how I sound, not that I'm handsome or not handsome or taller. My wife's taller than me, right? Like, I can't get my identity from those types of things. I can only hide in the cross, and the gospel changes me. Because then when I hide there, I'm free. I don't have to play this game. I don't have to put up this mask. I'm free, and that's where you want to be. As we follow this King Jesus, because what he has done for us, he gives us freedom to hide in him. Let's be those types of people. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this text, this story that's revealing character to us in real time. And so often, God, we get caught up just like your people. We get caught up in the flashy things and the things that look good on the outside. And we want those things for ourselves as leaders. And we want to follow those types of things in the leaders we follow. And clearly your economy says, stop looking there, start looking at my son. Pray you would help us do that, God, for those of us that are hiding from a conversation we might need to have with somebody. Help us trust you and anchor ourselves in you that your love never changes in and for us. That allows us to be free and to come out of hiding. You don't let Saul stay hidden. You don't let Adam and Eve stay hidden. You don't let us stay hidden. You bring us gently into the light. Help us trust you for that process. I ask that you would do it in your name. I pray it. Amen.